Shall we begin? Let's begin now. After three and a half years of traveling by bike and camping in a tent became old, one couple moved their adventure into a converted overlanding truck along with their motorcycles. So now they have the best of both worlds, comfort and moto adventure at their fingertips. Could be a great way to explore for those who prefer, let's say, advanced creature comforts. Also, the Parallel Twin Engine. Is the Parallel Twin the perfect engine for the future of adventure motorcycling? Well, I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. After three and a half years of riding motorcycles around the world, Lynn Williams and Alan Curtis found themselves tired of the camping routine. The tent set up and takedown was getting old, but they also had just arrived in the U.S. where accommodation fees are high for a traveler's budget. Their solution? Buy a delivery truck and convert the box into a camper. Load the bikes and keep going. Now, camping is free, hot water is on tap, and they can still ride their bikes. But the travel experience, it's definitely changed. 
Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Lynn. Um, Lynn Williams. I uh, we're from Australia, and um, what I do is I just travel the world by motorbike. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Kurt, exactly the same. Uh, we've been on the road since first of April, two thousand fourteen, and we've just been travelling ever since. Kurt, Lynn, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank, Thank you. you. You guys are traveling around right now with a truck converted into a, an RV, really, and carrying your motorcycle with you. But this is relatively new. Now, you mentioned, Kurt, you said you guys have been on the road since 2014. Let's sort of back up. How, how did the whole getting on the road thing get started? Because you guys had what people would call normal lives before this. Yes, yeah, we, we had normal lives. Um, we, we, we were both working. Um, but one morning, Kurt woke up and he said to me, he says, I have an idea. And I said, so, honey, what's that? And he said, oh, I think we should sail around the world. I said, sail? I don't want to sail around the world. It would be too long and boring and too much water. And he said, oh, okay. So about two months later, he said, uh, he wakes up again and he says, I have a plan. And I said, and this is going to cost me money. And he said, yes, it is. And um, he said, I said, well, what, what, what is your plan? And he said, um, I think we should ride from here to England. And I went, sure, no problem. We shall do that. Wait a and second. That, and that it, Shouldn't you be getting a CAT scan at this point, you know, when he wakes up in the morning <laughs> and comes up with this? You think the first thing you say, okay, hang on, we got to go see the doctor first. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, we, both been, we've both been riding bikes for um, a century or two. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, quite a long time, you know, since we were since we were teenagers. So um, the riding bikes was nothing new. We'd, we'd both been doing it for a long time, and we're still doing it then. So, um, and I wanted to go back to England. I was actually born there, but I left when I was a little fella, about three years old. So I had relations there that I hadn't seen for fifty years. So I thought, well, I want to go back and see him, but I don't want to fly back and do it the normal way. We we should ride back. So. That's that's where the whole thing started from. Well, and and really, I mean, that seems a little more sensible. At least this is a motorcyclist talking. It seems a little more sensible to ride your motorcycle to London rather than sail around the world. I mean, I would think sailing <laughs> would be much more dangerous. There'd be much more involved, and, and it sounds doable. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, I'm on. I've read um, like Ted Simon's book and a couple of the other books, and, and you know, these guys are doing it. So there's no reason we couldn't. So, Kurt, after you conned Lynn into thinking it was just a short ride, how did you break it to her that it was going to continue from there? Well, actually, that was Lynn's, Lynn's idea. We, um, we sort of talked about it, and we worked out that London is sort of halfway around, so if we were halfway around, why not keep going? We've got to come back, so uh, we thought, well, we keep going, we'll go back the other way. That's, that's where it all came from. But when you left, you obviously didn't plan on going like continually traveling. So, what did you just rent your house out, or close the door and lock it, and sort of thing, and, and hit the road? No, we well, we rented the house out, um, which is still rented now. Which is still rented out. So even if we wanted to, we go back. We can't. We can't move back into it. So, um, yeah, that was that was the plan. We rented out. We sold um, everything. Sold most of the things that we had left. We've got. You know, a couple of bits and pieces in storage, personal stuff that we wanted to keep there, and took off with everything we had left. 
What was the transition? You know, you get you get to London, basically that's your destination, or was it before you got to London uh-huh. on this side? Uh, before we got to London, we decided that it was halfway around, so we'll we'll just keep going and do the other half uh, on the way back. So, you guys have been all over the place now. I mean, <laughs> if you look through the list that you have on your website, there of the, I mean, it's just an endless list of places you've been, and many of them twice. Yeah, well, Europe particularly, we we crisscrossed and zigzagged, and there was really no no plan. Um, we'd go somewhere and then someone would say, oh, did you see this? Oh, no, we missed that. we better go back and have a look. So there was a bit of that went into it. Um, but the, we did make some plans, but as usual, as you do when you're travelling, you, it doesn't work out. You know, you, you think you're going to go here and then something happens. For instance, we went from Europe down through Spain and then across to Morocco and the plan was to ride down the west coast of Africa. But that was 2014, and that was unfortunately the time that the Ebola disease broke out in West Africa. So they closed a lot of borders. Um, and if you did go through, borders on the other side wouldn't accept you because you'd been through the, the infected area. So we didn't have much choice, really. We basically turned around and, and went back up into, into Europe again. So that, that wasn't supposed to happen, but that's just, that's just how it did. When you said that you guys decided to continue on, sort of travel around the world, was it open-ended at that point? Did you decide that, okay, we're not really going to go home anytime soon because it doesn't look like you're actually doing a, a loop of the world? No, we, um, we, we'd always planned to go back unless there was a, there was a big unless there, um, unless we found somewhere that we prefer to live. Um, if that was the case, well, then we could look at, going further and, and moving there permanently. But uh, to date, there's only a couple of places that have come close. Um, so it looks like at this stage, we're still still heading back to Australia. I'm curious, which places have almost been the, the place? <laughs> well, uh, Mexico was a, was an eye-opener. Uh, we'd heard a lot of bad things about it. and People said, oh, you can't go down there, they'll rob you and, and you know, you'll be shot and kidnapped and all sorts of things. But we both loved it. Um, we went through Mexico twice. The first time just going down through from the States, but then we went into Belize and Guatemala and then came back through Mexico again, back to the States, and both times we were in Mexico, we, we loved it. It was, it was, it was a real eye-opener. Eye There's a lot more there than people think, you know. You, we had a, a, an idea of what we thought Mexico might be, but there was so much more. You know, it's got got everything it's got friendly people it's pretty cheap to travel in cheap to stay in um it's got mountains it's got the ocean it's got good roads apart from the topos um but no it it, it really opened some eyes yeah it's i guess probably a familiar terrain or at least a environment for you coming from australia yes, yes. I mean, that's, yeah. that sort of has to be part of it right but what what didn't make the grade you, you said you know it didn't quite make it well, it's still not just like home. It's not Australia. <laughs> and where we live in Australia, we live um, in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast, though. So we actually live on the ocean as well. Um, so uh, we just love the ocean. We love to surf. We love um, sort of all aspects of the sea. So um, hence why he wanted to sail around the world. Um, but 
maybe we might do some of that when we finish this little um, trip. Are you day. sailors already? Uh, I am. Lynn has done a little bit, uh, but I used to do a bit of sailing years ago, and and uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. So that might be an option further down the track. So as far as the motorcycles and travel go, are the motorcycles transportation for you guys? I mean, you, you're sort of lifelong motorcyclist. I think both of you are from like 15 years old or something like that. You've been into bikes or exposed to bikes. Is it a mode of transportation or is it a lifestyle? It's uh, a lifestyle. It's, it's a lifestyle. Yeah, it's yeah. a lifestyle. We, we sort of plan a lot of things around it and, and gear everything to, to do on bikes. So, yeah, everything was, um, you know, the whole trip, everything was set out to, to just use bikes, the, the the truck idea didn't come along until we hit the states. What bikes are you guys riding? You're riding two bikes. Yeah, we've both got the same bikes. Um, the Yamaha XT 660s. They don't have them in the states and Canada. They were never sold over here. I don't know whether they didn't comply with the emission tests or whatever, but they're not available over here. They're good for everything. They're comfortable enough for the road, but they can handle a bit of dirt, and um, that's what we wanted—something that would cope with everything. Yeah, they're a great bike. I, we have no idea why we don't have them here in North America. I, I can only assume that somebody has ticked off somebody else. That's why we didn't get them. Be, because we've had the KLR, and the KLR is carbureted. Your bike, I believe, is fuel-injected. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. So, I yep. mean, so I, I can't see it being emissions. I have no idea what why that yeah. happened or why we never got that bike, and I guess we never will now at this point. So you, you've been traveling around on these two bikes, both the same bike, smart. You know, you can swap parts back and forth for any sort of problems, figure things out easier to to yeah, carry that, that was the idea. Yeah, I mean, it's you can carry one spare instead of one for each bike. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a great way to do it for sure. What's it been like traveling the world in those bikes? And not those bikes in particular, but by bike. Oh, it's been fantastic. Yeah, terrific. We've just we've just um, we've just had such a good time over the three and a half years on the bikes. Um, we've met a lot of wonderful people. Um, I think it's because um, we are on the bikes and they are from home um that people within about probably 20 seconds are talking to us every time we stop um you know uh, uh, they ask questions like are you from australia and we go yes and they go wow and then they say and your motorbikes are they from australia and you go yes and they go wow so um and then obviously the next question is how did you get the bikes here so um that sort of leads on to a fairly lengthy sort of conversations with people on the street. But, um, yeah, we, we, we just enjoy just being on them. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to travel. Um, you, you see so much, you become part of what you're traveling through instead of looking through a window. So, yeah, it's, it's been really, really good. And, and the bike's your draw card. People will come up to you and talk to you, whereas they wouldn't if you're traveling any other way. So um, it's a great... Um, icebreaker and, and door opener. And the bikes aren't set up the same. I, I think, Lynn, you, you've got soft panniers on yours. Yes, yeah. I've got the soft panniers because um, I thought that if I happen to fall off, I'm not going to end up with a hard pannier through the through the calf muscle. Um, and I've What's fallen it? off a few times. <laughs> only, only, only on slow slow, um, slow speeds, but um, which is lucky. Um, but yeah, I've got the soft panniers. Um, the it, it has been lowered about two inches. About, about two inches, um, and I had an adjustment in the seat as well. Um, 
I have to take it. Seat was cut down to, to suit. Yeah. So what was it like, um, you know, as far as border crossings and, and things like that, traveling by bike, I mean, there's all kinds of, um, there's a, I, I guess what I'm getting to here is, is the difference between the bikes and you traveling by truck. And, and I want to get to the, the truck shortly, but as far as traveling by bike for border crossings, dealing with officials or things like that, were there downsides or, or was it all up? Uh, there was a lot of upsides. I think, uh, in a lot of countries, if you're traveling on a bike and you come up to a border, uh, you go straight to the front of the queue, basically. A lot of people, they'll just wave you on. You know, bikes, okay, you go. So there might be a big line up of cars and you go straight to the front. Um, I felt a bit guilty a couple of times, actually, with that happening. Because <laughs> you're getting people, scooted along. Yeah, <laughs> the people there, they were, they were cool with it. There was no problem. They just said, yeah. So um, so that was that was a plus. Um it's a little bit more awkward digging out paperwork and things um, when you get there. And we had a few little issues proving our um, bikes, what's the word, paperwork, I guess, the, the ownership and registration of the bikes because they all, all the border officials want to see original copies of everything or originals of everything. And um, in Australia, when you register a motorbike, you do it all online and you just print out your um, your paperwork, and they'd see the printout and go, "No, this is this is not an original. This is a copy. We want to see the original." So, how I fixed that is that I got a little stamp with a little motorbike on it, and I uh, stamped the copy of our paperwork and scribbled on it, <laughs> and it looked original then. <laughs> wow! So this is just a rubber stamp. That's yeah. It was actually a stamp from Motocamp Bulgaria. <laughs> wow, that is great. <laughs> the official stamp. I didn't realize that. Now, here in British Columbia, Canada, it's a similar setup. It's printed off on paper, but it is an official paper. It has um, some sort of pink printing on the back, but it's not like it's um, it's foolproof. I mean, this could easily be photocopied the same way. So, so that's interesting. That's how you got around that. And since you've done that stamp, no problem. It's been fine because um, actually when we were back home um, uh, a couple of years ago, I went and got it stamped at, at the uh, proper office, Department of the Department of Transport, and they stamped a copy of our paperwork with a black stamp. <laughs> so it looked the same. So, <laughs> so because the other one was either a blue or a red, I, I can't remember now. Blue, um, yeah. yeah, it looked like it, and that was an original copy. But if you smudge it a little bit, they can't read the words anyway. So, um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> we, it, it's we, it's funny the things that you have to do that. Um, well, obviously, it's not following the rules, is it? I mean, could yeah. you could you even get around the world by motorcycle and follow all the rules? No, no, no. it doesn't happen, I, does it? I don't think so. I, I think uh, you know that the world, the travel world, and the border world is geared for people that are on holidays and they're traveling in buses or aeroplanes and that's where the, the majority of how the majority of people are traveling and, and that's what it's all geared to if you're doing something a little bit different you're, you're outside one of the boxes and that's when it all goes pear-shaped um, yeah, it's oh, the rules aren't really geared for people to do what we do I and mean, that, that's a shame because there's a lot of people doing it. You have a blog entry there, fairly recent. You're leaving Guatemala and you end up um, having to turn around and come back. Can you tell that story? 
we were coming from Guatemala into Mexico. Into Mexico. Into Mexico. And we, we got down to the border of Mexico. Oh, yeah. And then they said, but you haven't been stamped out yes. in Guatemala. And we said, but we couldn't find anywhere that we needed to be stamped out. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Some of the border crossings, you can just ride across. There's no one there stopping you. No one wants to check paperwork. No one wants to stamp your passport. So we just rode through thinking, well, there's no one here to do anything. So we'll keep going and we'll go to the, the, the Mexican side. And we got there and they said, where's your exit stamp? And it's like, well, there was no one there to give it. So um, we had to turn around and ride all the way back and find someone to actually stamp us out of the country. Um, it, it's You shake your head sometimes and you, you know, people talk about, and sometimes it is very hard to get into countries. But, um, yeah, if there's no one there doing their job, well, yeah, you, what are you going to do? Have, I don't know. Well, yeah. well, in that, you said you rolled up to it, and, and I think they want to spray your bikes. Um, they, they, <laughs> no, they, yeah. they, they sprayed your bikes, but you didn't have any money to pay them. No. <laughs> we, we, because we were leaving, I didn't think about spraying the bikes. We, we'd spent all our local currency because the currency changes on the other side of the border. The currency you had before was no good to you, so we basically used all our, um, all our currency got there and then they wanted more and they we said well we don't have any cash we, we need to go to an ATM um, no sorry no ATM um, in the end we just <laughs> I don't know what we gave them. We, we just we just <laughs> argued we offered them some a few coins that we had in their pocket and that wasn't enough and in the end they just gave up and waved us on uh, <laughs> but uh, just thinking about uh, well, I guess we weren't thinking. We, we should have thought about having a few a few dollars in our pocket for this sort of thing, but we thought we were doing the right thing, getting, getting rid of the local currency and, and getting ready for the next lot. But As far as route goes, just give a rough runner of your route so people have an idea of what your route has been. Okay, well, we, we shipped our bikes from Australia to Singapore, and then from Singapore we did... Malaysia and Thailand, across to Cambodia. Um, and as people will be aware, you can't go through China or Myanmar, although it's starting to open up now, uh, Myanmar is, uh, without guides. And guides are expensive, 200 US a day for a, for a guide to go through China. And there's a lot of um, paperwork and a lot of planning to go into to your itinerary to get through China. But we didn't want to do that, so... When we finished in Bangkok, in Thailand, we flew the bikes from Bangkok across to Germany, actually. We flew them all the way to Germany. And the, and the only reason that we actually did that was that we were going to ride across. We are going to fly them to Kathmandu, Kathmandu and ride through India and um, ride ride through Iran and Iraq, but uh, not Iran. Not, not, Iraq, but, um, um, but unfortunately, we were out with the timing, um, with the weather, and in India it was 52 degrees Celsius and monsoon rains, and I, I don't think that's fun. Yeah, that doesn't uh, sound fun. At all. <laughs> yeah. we, we were six months out with the weather, and that, that was my fault. Well, I, he checked Singapore, and that was it. <laughs> that's an easy mistake. And it doesn't, it doesn't change all year round. Yeah. So we, we ended up flying to um, 
to Germany. So from Germany, we rode through France, Belgium, um, across to the UK and all around the UK, including Scotland and Ireland. Um, then back to France, down through Andorra to Spain, across to Morocco, and back up again. As I as I said before, we, we couldn't go further south there. Um, through Portugal, back to Spain again, and then uh, through France, Italy, Austria, and down through Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, Albania, down to Greece, and then up through Bulgaria, Romania, Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, up to Sweden, Norway, Denmark, back to Germany again, <laughs> back through Poland again. Um, and then from Poland, we went up through Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland, and then crossed from Finland into Russia, near St. Petersburg, and then from there down to Moscow, across to Kazan, then down to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, back into Russia, into Mongolia, back into Russia, across to Vladivostok, and then we shipped the bikes from Vladivostok in a container across to um, LA, and then from it, from there we did um, basically right across to Texas, and then down into crossed it at Brownsville down into Mexico, and then Belize, Guatemala, back into Mexico, and then back up into Arizona and. Um, from there, that's that's where the truck came into it. After travelling a little bit in the in the US, the, the accommodation side of it got us concerned. So that's where the truck came in. And at that stage, we had had enough of tenting or camping. <laughs> so you've been tenting it the whole way along, and that that's sort of that's one of those things. Well, but let's look at that. I mean, the, to make the decision, who who comes up with the idea of, hey, look, I'm getting sick of doing this. Um. Well, I think, uh, I, think, I, think I think both of us. Yeah, are, uh, probably you more than than me in the end. But then, yeah. but then, as for Kurt, Kurt was the one that had to do the unpacking and the and and the packing. Well, he didn't have to, but that's what he did. So he, after packing and unpacking every day, you you soon get sick of that. So um, because we don't tend to stay anywhere for more than maybe two or three days, and then we just sort of move on because there's so much of the world to see and so little time. Well, uh, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of places we'd only stay one night, and putting the tent up and pulling it down every day is a, a bit of a pain. Um, but we we tried to use a lot of hotels where we could in the cheaper countries like Russia and the stands. Accommodation is cheap, so we didn't have to do the the um, the tent thing. No, you can get a room for twenty twenty dollars a night. Um, so that was that was fine in the cheaper countries. It's in the more expensive countries that you know, we did more tenting. So where did the idea for the truck come from? Um, well, we thought about RVs, and then we heard negative things about them. You know, they're being lightly built and not being able to handle off road and things like that. So we thought, well, maybe a truck. It's already got the box on it. We'll just put a bed and a fridge and a stove in it, and that'll solve that problem. So. That's what we. That's what we ended up doing. 
So is the plan still the same, though, as you're, as you're looking at this, or at least as far as travel goes? You, you're just going to travel in, until you get sick of it and you decide you want to go home. Uh, has anything changed in that field? No, no. We, we are still going to travel um, basically all of Canada, all of um, America, and then hopefully later next year we'll be shipping the truck and the two bikes down to South America. So, and then we'll just continue through South America then. What kind of truck did you buy? We bought an Isuzu box truck. It's an Isuzu NPR. It's a small um, four-wheel truck, this diesel truck. This hasn't got six, you know, it's only two axles, not three. Um, it's fairly small, but it's got a 16-foot box on the back, which is plenty big enough for us to have a bit of space and stretch out, but it'll, you know, it's got the bed and the, the stove and the fridge and Sort of 16 no. feet long and, and almost 8 feet wide, I guess? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's a diesel and it's four-wheel drive? No, it's not four-wheel drive. It's only two-wheel drive. Oh, it's two-wheel um, drive. Yeah, I'd like to get a four-wheel drive. But the, the other beauty of it is um, a lot of those box trucks have a tailgate loader on the back of it, which is perfect for the bike. So um, you just press a button and the, <laughs> the, the bike goes up and down and... Yeah, I saw that on the back here. So that's the whole platform at the back. You're, you're basically rolling the bike on and then powering yep. it up to, to bed level and then powering it down when you want to ride off. It's, it's exactly. dead easy. Yeah, it's nice and easy. It's, it's simple. Yeah. How, how about converting it? So you bought this thing. I mean, I'm curious about registration and insurance as well, but, but as far as converting <laughs> it goes, where did you find a place to convert it? Uh, look, we were lucky enough to, um, to, to meet a couple of people. They're Australians that live in Phoenix. And terrific people. Um, some friends of ours introduced us, and Which with Ked and Carol, Ked um, and Carol Devell, um suggested that we talk to uh, talk to these guys, Bevan and Claire. Bevan's actually a um, he's a bike rider and has been for years. He's travelled around the world as well, and um, so he knows what um, what it's like. Um, and he's also pretty handy and got some tools and. And a big block of land, so he he said, "Look, if you really want to, if you want to do it, you can you can use the the yard here." And uh, and that was a great plus. So we bought, ended up buying the truck in Tucson, drove it up to Phoenix, and and did the did the conversion there. So now you've got sort of a full RV. You've got a, a water tank in there and a holding tank, that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah, got all that. We uh, we we were lucky enough to to score a, a damaged slide on camper, which we robbed all the stuff out of and um, that sort of kept the cost down as well. And you put the two bikes on the back or are you just running with one bike? Uh, at the moment, one. <laughs> we had a bit of an issue just with getting enough room to get both bikes on the back. Um, we, we we got them on, but I wasn't happy with the way it was, it was sitting and things. and um, It was a little bit unsafe. Yeah, it was a bit unsafe. So mm. we ended up just putting one on for the moment. I've just got to work out how I'm going to get the other one uh, later on. Once we get back to um, Arizona, I think maybe it might might go on the front. Uh, one on the front, one on the back, I think. But uh, I haven't worked that out yet. I'm going to take a minute and give a quick thank you to a couple of sponsors that helped make this episode possible for you today. And the first is IMS. The IMS logo is one that you'll see all over off-road race bikes. And you got to wonder, well, how does it get there? Well, 
simply by continually building products to the highest standards. And the IMS foot pegs are built with the same quality and attention to detail that they put into their, their race equipment. Now, IMS was founded back in 1976, and although it's a household name in the off-road racing and enthusiast circle, they're now gaining a reputation in the adventure motorcycle industry for their complete line of race-quality foot pegs for adventure bikes. Now, these pegs are made in the USA. They're designed specifically for adventure riding, our style riding. They're made of 17-4 cast-certified stainless steel. They have a certified heat-treating process. But bottom line, they're guaranteed for life. Scott Wright, the owner of IMS, told me himself, he said, if you fracture these pegs, they're going to replace them under warranty. Simple as that, cut and dried. Try a set out on your bike. And if you're not sure which style peg is for you, just call or email IMS to talk about your needs. Visit IMS at www.imsproducts.com. That's www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And the other is Motobird Adventures. Motobird Adventures is motorcycle tours for women by a woman. And that woman that runs Motobird Adventures and owns Motobird Adventures is Carrie Doherty. Carrie is located in California and runs her trips in that area. And she has a real passion for what she does. I mean, she really loves riding and showing people the special places that she's found when she's been exploring by herself. If you're a woman rider or you know a woman rider that may be interested in this, drop by her website. She's got trips coming up for October, uh, sorry, uh, September 30th to October 3rd, uh, the Sonoma County's trip. That's four days, three nights. She has another one on October 20th to 24th, four days, three nights. That's 2017, of course. Drop by the website, www.motobirdadventures.com. That's www.motobirdadventures.com. And of course, anytime you're talking with Carrie, let her know that you heard her here on Adventure Rider Radio. So now you're traveling by truck, you stop, you unload the bike and you ride. What have you noticed here? I mean, (laughs) that's almost a silly question, but what have you noticed here as far as the way you're experiencing the places that you're visiting? Um, Well, it's interesting because when we are in the truck, no one waves to us anymore. Um, you know, <laughs> just, you lost little, your status. Yes, we have, we have, we have lost that status because we are not obviously on motorbikes, but then we're not in an RV. So the RV people don't wave and then the truck people don't wave because we're not quite large enough to be a, a real truck. Um, <laughs> but once we got, once we get on the motorbike, people start to talk to us again. You know, when we stop for something, people start to talk to us again. And that's probably one of the major things that we are, we are, we, we are missing, I think, um, is, that, is that interaction with people. Um, so eventually when we do meet some people, we probably talk their heads off. Because um, <laughs> when, when there's only two people 24-7, well, you, you do run out of conversation after three and a half years so we find it interesting yeah well it'll be curious to see what it's like when you get to south america when your plate is from a different country because right now you're you're, i assume it's plated in the u.s 
Yeah, yes. it is. Yeah, so it's, it's got U.S. plates. It doesn't really stand out other than the fact that maybe people can see that it's been converted into an RV, which seems to be, uh, I think, a bit of a trend now where a lot of people are taking trailers, uh, us included, and, uh, and converting them into an RV-style thing. But you mentioned, Kurt, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, too, when people would spot your bikes and they can see your bikes are all packed up and then they spot the plates and realize the plates are from Australia, it draws people in. I wonder if that's going to happen with the truck. Mm, it could um, do. Look, maybe when we get down into South America. Um, we put a map on the side, a world map, and sort of put a bit of a line through where we'd been, traced our, um, our track or our journey on the on the map. People are curious when they see that as well. Um, it's not like we, we're craving attention or anything, but we just... We just, we just enjoy talking to people. Yeah. Well, and, and it's a way to find out things. It's a way to sort of really connect with the culture, isn't it? Yeah, well, the locals will um, come over and talk to you, and then I'll say, oh, look, while you're here, you should see this or go here or do this. or um, And it is a great way to to, um, to see a lot more of the area rather than just drive through it. What else has changed with the, the way you're exploring now? Oh, it's a lot easier now that we are not in the elements of the weather, especially up, up um, Alaska way. Um, yeah, so it's certainly a lot warmer. <laughs> <laughs> we often say because you've got a um, heater as well. Yeah, yes. but you yeah. know there are times that we've said, oh, you know, it's been a really cold morning, and we've gone, thank God, we're not tenting. Um, yeah, I think one of the other things is that when you get to somewhere that's, um, you know, that, that has got a a walk, a lookout, or a walk or something, it's a lot easier to hop out the truck in normal clothes and normal shoes. Um, and hike a couple of kilometres to go and look at a waterfall or a canyon or whatever it is, rather than have to uh, lock all your gear on the bike and walk it in in bike gear and bike boots and and jackets and things like that. Um, so that's certainly a lot certainly a lot easier in that regard. And you throw everything in the back of the truck and just take what you need for the hike. So that's that's a plus. You actually look like normal people when you're doing a hike instead of a... <laughs> <laughs> Which can be good and bad. <laughs> yeah, well, true, yeah. yeah. What about expense, though? I mean, the truck has to be incredibly expensive to run compared to your two bikes. Uh, not really. I mean, that's a lot of people say that, but travelling by bike is much cheaper if it's just one bike. But if you're travelling with two bikes, all of a sudden you're doubling your fuel costs you're doubling your tyres, um, chains, sprockets, all your wear things. Um, tyres on the truck last a lot longer. They're actually about the same price as, a, as bike tyres, to be honest. Um, and with only one lot of fuel, it's not that much more expensive. Because we only travel about probably about 300 mile a day top, so um, it's really only about 10 or $15 a day more. Wow, um, so that's totally offset for if you had to pay for accommodations because with that truck, you can stop anywhere. You, you can stop on the side of the road, any pull-out you can yeah. find. Yeah, because it's a truck and not an RV, we tend to do a bit of stealth camping. You know, we'll, we'll um, might be in the car park somewhere or <laughs> if you know, we, we can't find somewhere to park. We don't do RV parks and things like that. We've never been into one yet. Um, um, we are not interested either. No, we really don't want to line up with everyone and have RVs all around us and kids and dogs and things um, making noise all night and generators going, all that sort of thing. We don't have a generator. So we have solar power. We do stealth camping and, and wild camping all the time. 
um, we, we're set up for it and that's what we prefer. How often are you unloading the bike now and riding the bike? Um, probably in the last eight weeks, maybe about six, six or seven times. Yeah, probably so once, once a week. Um, yeah, it just depends on where we are and what we're doing. Um, you know, going through some of the national parks and that, it's good to go on the bike. Um, and since we've been up here, not so much in Alaska. Yeah, <laughs> it's been pretty cold. <laughs> but it but it's, a, it's a nice setup, though, I'm sure, because you can, especially when you when you get the two bikes on there, because ostensibly you could park somewhere for a week if you wanted and go explore on the motorcycles and come back. That's, yeah, that's the whole idea, actually. We use the truck as a hub. We get across the boring stuff um, in the truck with the bikes on the back. Uh, and then with the truck as a hub, we can jump on the bikes and go, you know, do the cloverleaf thing all, all out and around and see whatever there is to see in that area and then move on to the next. Have there been disadvantages you found with the truck? Have you got to places and went, oh, if we had the bikes, you know, if we we're riding the bikes, we would have went to see that, but it's too much hassle? Uh, uh, not really. The biggest hassle, I guess, is it's a truck, not a car, so you can't park it in, you know, the convenient places where you, with the bikes, you can park them anywhere. Um, well, look, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's been, it hasn't been too bad, actually. We've been able to get to wherever we need to go pretty well, I think, with the truck. I'd mentioned about um, license and, and insurance. How do you handle that? <laughs> well, with the, with the licensing, um, there is a criteria to, to have it registered as an RV, um, which, we, which we obviously have. Um, you, you have to have a, a bed, cooking facilities. Bed, cooking facilities, water. Um, there's and, about six, six different things, I think, power. Um, so once, once we got it converted officially to an RV, once we complied with some of those regulations and got it converted to an RV, that was fine. Um, insurance was another matter. Yeah, that was that was an act, that was actually a nightmare because um, when you when I would ring up the insurance companies um, and they, and I would say it was a truck, they would think it was a small sort of truck. I go, no, it's an Isuzu, and then they they would ask for the VIN number, and I give the VIN number, and they go, but that's not an RV, that's a big truck, and I'd go, but it's. it's Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a commercial vehicle, and I'd say, but but it's been converted into an RV. It's registered as an RV, and they go, we can't help you. So this went on for about two weeks. Went on and on and on. You know, wow. I got knocked back after knocked back. I sent photos uh, because it because it doesn't fit in any box. So um, near the end, I was going to register it as a commercial vehicle. I uh, sorry, insure it as a commercial vehicle. Um, which was quite expensive, but we had to have some sort of insurance. And eventually, um, a young lady who worked in a state farm office um, rang me and said, "Yes, we can insure it." So we paid the money as quick as possible, <laughs> very quickly, <laughs> and said, "Thank you very much." Um, and we haven't heard anything since. So hopefully, it's still insured. But um, I'm, 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 I'll be thinking it would be. But, uh, yeah, that was one of the difficult things because it doesn't fit in that normal box. Now, whether that was just Arizona, because we have other friends that we've met with the exact same vehicle and idea um, in 
Colorado and other states in America, and they have had no problem at all. So each state, I believe, is a little bit different, which we are learning quite quickly as we go. Was well, is there any problem with the fact that you're Australians? No, because we've, we actually went and got our licenses in Arizona. So oh, that see. saved on um, the insurance as well. And to actually get your license in Arizona was about $10 each, which was, and that's for five years, which was absolutely amazing because back in Australia, to get a license, um, and that lasts for five years or so, was, it would cost you around about the 200 to $250. Mm. So $10 in Arizona was a bargain. And it paid for itself because when we got to the first national park, um, by showing our license, we got our. Um, you park. got yours. I got my park. <laughs> because, because I'm an old fella, uh, <laughs> because I'm 63, I, I ended up getting a lifetime seniors pass or something. I forget what they call it. But yeah, it was, and that cost ten dollars. Cost me ten bucks, and I can get in any national park anywhere in the U.S. forever. That's really good. What what happens though when you get to the border and your driver's license is from Arizona and your passport says you're from Australia? Uh, if we're going to a border, we'll use our other drivers. Oh, so you didn't have stuff. to surrender them. See, that's the key because a lot of times, like here, if you tried it in in Canada, I think in any of the provinces in Canada, they'll require that you surrender your other license. Yeah, no, we said that we needed our other license for when we go back to Australia, so oh. we we could. So they did ask for you to surrender them? They, they ask, but it's not compulsory. Oh, interesting. That's that's yeah. really good. See, it's another one of these things that, that travelers discover that rules aren't necessarily as rigid as they appear. Yeah. Now, look, that, that may vary from state to state. It just happened that we were in Arizona, um, and it wasn't compulsory to do it in Arizona, but, you know, in the next state or other states it might change. I, I honestly don't know. But it... It, it is hard to hand back your Australian licence because, because we are actually going home this Christmas, which we didn't last Christmas, but we are going home this Christmas and um, we obviously have to have our licence to drive around back home. So um, they, they can't take, take it off you really. We, we, have to, um, we have to go back home because our visa requirements, um, we did get a five-year visa for the US, but even though we've got five years, we can only stay in the US for six months. We have to leave and then come back. And, and when I say leave, going to Mexico or going to Canada doesn't count. Um, you've got to go further afield. You've actually got to leave the North American continent and then come back. Oh, is that right? Um, they, they specify it, that. It, yeah. yeah. It is for people from England and Australia and um, those those colonies but apparently not for people from South America South Americans can actually come in on five year visa and stay for five years so I have been told I think it depends on on your country of origin like um, but we have to leave every six months well that gets expensive that really adds to your travel costs in the United States then you're adding every six months of flying back home and back again well it does we sort of unintentionally beat it the first time because we didn't just go to Mexico because we went through to Belize and Guatemala and then come back in. They, they started the clock again when we got back to the US so we got another six months. 
but I think if you fly to, I don't know, I think there's a little French colony somewhere off Newfoundland that you can, little island you can fly to and then come back, that, that might start the clock again too. We've got to look further into that. Or Iceland or, or Iceland or something Greenland like that. Or something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because it, that gets quite expensive having to go back to Australia just to uh, to start the clock again for another six months. Yeah, it does. It yeah, does. but 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 of course we have uh, family and friends back in Australia, which we haven't seen for a couple of years. So it would be nice to catch up rather than yeah. just do all the stuff over Facebook or Skype. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's great if, you, if it's in your budget, but I mean, boy, that uh, that will certainly yeah. add to the, the overall expense of things. And, and also now you're paying insurance on a truck and you're still paying insurance on your bikes and, and all of that sort of stuff. So that, again, adds up to your road cost. Oh, of yeah. course, yes. That's, that's another thing um, that I, I find is a little bit tough to take is we have to have a registered motorcycle, otherwise our insurance doesn't cover us. But when you register your motorcycle in Australia you have to pay third-party insurance. They won't register it without it. But the third-party insurance doesn't cover you out of the country. <laughs> so we're paying for insurance that we can't use, <laughs> but we still have to have it, or they won't register it. So it's, uh, once again, because we're out of the normal the normal little box, um, there's, no, there's no alternative plan. So we just, that's something we just have to cop, and it's... Um, it's a shame because the insurance is the, is the bulk of the cost of, of registration. But there's nothing we can do about it. So. For someone who's looking to do something like you guys are, are doing now or have done on your motorcycles, what sort of tips would you have for them? Um, just do it. There's a lot of people that we've spoken to that have gone, oh, I'd love to do that or I really want to do that, but I don't have the right bike and... and um, there I is, don't think there is a, a right bike. There is no right bike. I mean, uh, or go, wrong bike, really. Go, go with what you've got. I mean, they'll all do it. And probably we made the same mistake that 90% of the travellers make. We started off with too much gear. Um, we were overloaded and ended up sending some back. Um, so basically work out what you absolutely have to have and then get rid of half of it. And that's a big one that everybody runs into, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't even know if it's possible. Is it possible to go out uh, and do a trip without leaving with too much stuff? Well, I don't <laughs> think it is possible. But, but no. then, but like now, the what we have in the truck, we had on the motorbike. So technically, we're not really carrying that much more, especially when it comes to clothing. We have the same amount of clothing <laughs> as what we're in the truck as what we had on the motorbikes. <laughs> so we have learned that you don't need so much so much stuff in this world you know no, you no. just don't need it that's no, one thing we have learned yeah there's a lot of stuff that we you can, can get by without have you had any sort of big eye openers big lessons you've learned traveling in the road this long um probably one of the biggest the, i think there's been two or three big things um the, i think the main one was that we we had lost faith in human nature um what do you mean three, Oh, you know, like everyone was out for themselves. This is this is what we thought. Everyone, everyone was, uh, you know, out for themselves. Everyone looked after themselves and didn't look after, you know, um, their neighbours or whatever else. Yeah. Um, and hearing hearing on the news how how it was doom and and gloom and and every you know and all this sort of stuff that goes on on the media. Um, since we've been out in the road, we have a lot more faith in human nature. We, we've had that much help from people 
um, all over the world. And, um, yeah, it's just that that helped a lot, didn't it? It yeah. restored our faith. And I think it doesn't really matter what country you're in. Um, people all around the world, they're all like you and I. They just want to you know, feed their kids. To be happy. To be happy, have a good time, sit and have a drink and a talk and enjoy life. It doesn't matter what country they're from. Um, it's the same all over the world. Everyone, everyone's the same. I think it's the governments and the politics are um, totally different, but people are the same everywhere. They're all, you know, they're all good people. They're all, they all just want to help. And you find your attitude has changed, like you know, when, yeah. like for instance, you're camped somewhere and somebody comes up to you at the start. It's probably a completely different feeling than now. Oh yes, 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 and definitely. And um, what we have found also is that we've met, actually met people, say six or twelve months ago. And then we've caught up with them again, and just to hear them speak, and their attitudes have totally changed as well. You mean people who are travelling same as you? Yeah, yeah, yeah um, which is which is also extremely interesting. Yeah. Um, that that yeah, after a while you just have a different outlook on life and everything else. But the other thing that's also changed is um, we had we all have these uh, preconceived ideas of what. A certain country's like, you know, what it's supposed to look like, what the, the people are supposed to be like. But what we've found is that it doesn't look anything like what you actually think. Yeah. You know, when you get there, it's it's totally different to you, to what you expected in a lot of countries. Are you talking physically? Yeah, um, physically, like um, uh, all through Eastern Eastern Europe, yeah, that's beautiful. But we we had the idea that it was. Boring and plain and, and gray and, and yeah and um, no, yeah and it, but it's just all through Eastern Europe they're just wonderful countries they're just you know they they got and, and the and the people you know we we expected sort of surly um, grunting uneducated <laughs> which is sad the way it's given yeah, but, but but it's easy to do, isn't it? Yes. That's that's what we're fed a lot of times. Even if it, I mean, I, I hate to always blame the media because the media always gets blamed for this stuff. But but I mean, even through word of mouth, it's it's those nasty stories that tend to be told and retold. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. because what's happened is that, um, and I've I've actually said this story many times to people. It's um, we were in. Germany and we were going into Poland and I go and then the people in Germany would say where are you going I go I'm going to Poland and they go oh you can't go to Poland and we go why can't we go to Poland and they say because they will rape you they'll stab you they'll kill you and I go no they won't and this has happened in every country that we've gone into from the country we are leaving which is really interesting um, even when we're going from Finland into Russia same story Oh, don't go to Russia. They're, they're bad people there, you know. They'll rape you, they'll stab you, they'll kill you. <laughs> but I think the interesting thing is when we were coming to the States and we were leaving Vladivostok in Russia and and I spoke to someone there and they said, no, you can't go to America. And I go, because they'll rape you, stab you, they'll kill you. They, they said, no, just shoot you. They all carry guns. <laughs> 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 But it was the same when we when we went from the states to Mexico, and you know, and it just goes on and on and on. And you think, well, well, that could happen back home, anywhere. And it could happen anywhere in the world if you actually put yourself in that in that situation. So you just steer steer clear of those situations. Use it the common sense. I think you can travel just about anywhere. 
what else? Um, I don't know. I, don't know. I, ju- I just think there's, there's so much to see and it's, it's yeah. not that difficult. I think uh, if you want to do it, just get out there and do it. It's not that hard. Just go, just go and do it. You know, I've, I've had people, I mean, obviously we, we talk to people all the time who are traveling and I, and I have had numerous people tell me that they're, they're almost a little embarrassed by it because everyone thinks they're out there doing this incredibly brave thing, but they're saying that yeah. it's so easy. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. Um, I think we've had comments uh, similar to that and we've also had comments that we are so lucky and I say, well, I don't think luck has anything to actually do with it. We just made it happen. There is no luck involved. It, we just, you know, you, you just have to get up and make it happen. If you want to do it, it's it's not, it's not that hard. Eh? Yeah. Well, I think sometimes when people are saying lucky, it's it's situational. I mean, there are people who will never be able to travel. They have commitments that they can't get away from. They don't. They don't want to get away from. Really, maybe they're looking yeah. after a a loved one who who can't travel. Whatever the case is. Um, so I think that's probably what some people mean when they're saying lucky. I think it's exactly right. They, there's commitments they don't want to get away from. If they wanted to get yeah. away from it, they could, they could and, and they, they would. And we're lucky enough to be born into countries that we can do this, like even financially. I mean, there's many countries you're traveling through. Those people would probably have zero chance, no chance at all of ever being able to travel. No, that's right. Yeah. You're right, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When you go through the, the countries, like these countries, for instance, the poor countries, what's that feeling like? Because I mean, you're going through, you know, anybody, any of us who travel through any place that, uh, you know, has a depressed economy, is, is doesn't make as much money, you're traveling through like a rich person through these places. What do you do there? How, how do you make a connection with those people? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I, I think about making a connection, but once you start talking to them, they, for a start, they see you maybe as a as a dollar sign. But once you start talking, and they realise that in the, in the on the same scale of things, we know we know better off than they are. Um, but I mean, that's sort of like, I mean, you can imagine, you know, seeing somebody, uh, you guys posted a picture of a yacht, I think, uh, um, I can't remember where it was now, but he posted a picture of a yacht, uh, this, this incredibly fancy, obviously very, very expensive yacht with a helicopter. I mean, it'd be like you guys riding up in your motorcycles and talking to that person, them telling you, yeah, well, things not so good. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't have all that much money. I have to watch where I travel, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was in Mexico. Yeah. But yeah. what, what, what we found with the with the poorer countries is that those people actually take us home and feed us. So, and then we feel really bad because they, they don't have any, um, any extra food and, um, but they are quite happy just to feed us. They'll share, they'll share whatever they got. And that's something we found actually is that in the poorer countries, um, the poorer they are, the happier they are. I mean, that sounds stupid and contradictory, but, it's it's pretty close. A lot of, you know, they don't have much, and they're happy to share what they've got. And um, there's no bitterness. There's no um, jealousy, I guess, or maybe there's a little bit, but they keep it pretty well hidden. Uh, they're they're fun to be with, and they're just more than happy to share everything everything they've got. You you've been in the truck now for for how long? About eight weeks. About eight weeks. At this point. Is it a no return to, to straight motorcycle travel? Is this going to be the mode? I uh, think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough to turn away from that comfort, isn't it? Walking over to the fridge and opening it up or turning the heater on or getting in your bed. Yeah, that's 
that's that's the key. I never say never, but um, yeah. because, because probably when we finish with South America, we will sell everything, and then we'll fly home via South Africa, and then we'll get back on the motorbikes. Then I think. But that's but that's a couple of years away still, Mike. So um, <laughs> anything can happen between then and yeah. now and then. Yeah. Lynn, Kurt, thank you very much. Thank you. No worries, Mike. Thanks very much. That was Alan Curtis and Lynn Williams, and you can find out more about their travels by visiting their website, www.twoxtw, that's 2xtw.com. Now stay with us, because coming up in just a minute, we're going to talk about parallel twins and whether they make the perfect engine for adventure motorcyclists. Coming up later this month... Friday, September 29th through October 1st is Overland Expo East held at the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. Now, Overland Expo is a huge event geared for overlanders with tons of motorcycle-specific things for us. Looking through their itinerary for the weekend, there's so much going on. I mean, I really doubt you're going to be able to take it all in, but there's tons of new things just for this year, like their Motorcycle Expedition Skills Area, where they have classes on everything from proper packing to border crossings for all riders. So if you're planning a round-the-world trip or maybe you're just planning on riding locally, You've got these experienced riders and travelers to learn from to save you maybe some silly mistakes that you might that we all make, I guess, when we go out and do new things. This is a motorcycle event not to be missed for 2017 for sure. Sam Manicom is also going to be there, at least in Simon Thomas. Ted Simon himself will be there. To get tickets, this is key. You've got to buy your tickets online in advance. They do not sell tickets at the gate. So drop by their website, www.overlandexpo.com forward slash moto to get your ticket online. And after you've chose what pass you want for the weekend, you can grab the ADV Moto package sponsored by ADV Moto Magazine. Now that's going to get you a lot of extras, including a Saturday night dinner and drinks, um, a chance to win loads of prizes they've got and a whole bunch more, all sponsored by ADV Moto Magazine. Drop by the website, www.overlandexpo.com forward slash moto. And of course, when you're doing it, make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Uh, my name is Zach Kerlick, and I'm from New Brunswick in the east coast of Canada, and I am the editor at Canada Moto Guide. I'm the managing editor there, and I work for a few other publications on the side now and then. Zach, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. We're sort of talking about what we talked about before. We talked about um, sort of the the death of the the single cylinder, and I think that probably sent a lot of people, you know, <laughs> feeling a little frenzied, thinking, "Oh no, when's going to be my last point to buy a single cylinder motorcycle?" But what's your update now on, on the Parallel Twin? Uh, I think that in the last twelve months or so, we've seen uh, the Parallel Twin has kind of moved to the forefront as the the engine of choice for the manufacturers, especially uh, in the adventure bike scene, um, perhaps not so much in, in the classic dual sport line, but certainly in adventure bike, I think the Parallel Twin is, is proven to be the way forward. Existing platforms are being updated and new ones will be on the market probably this fall. So just for those who don't know, what is a Parallel Twin? Parallel Twin looks an awful lot like a single cylinder engine, except instead of one cylinder sticking up in the frame, there's two side by side. And it can be any configuration. Some of them are, are straight up and down. Some of them are slanted forward. Yeah, some of them have the cylinders tipped forward a bit. Some of them are straight up and down. Uh, it's a fairly classic engine design. And the Brit bikes of the 50s and 60s used uh, parallel twins to dominate 
the world for a while there until the Japanese motorcycles came over in the 60s and 70s and popularized the inline four. And uh, it was, seemed to be kind of the death of the performance parallel twins, although those have been around ever since, just in more uh, pedestrian or, or kind of a second line bikes for the most part. Why um, do you think that they're, they're going to the parallel twin? What's the advantage of it? There are a few advantages. Um, I think most of all, it's because they're pollution efficient, I guess I would say. Uh, the smaller pistons of the parallel twin, uh, when compared to a thumper of the same uh, capacity, mean that it's easier for the manufacturers to pass emissions testing. Uh, if you look at, um, uh, for instance, the emissions of a Versus 650 from Kawasaki, uh, when compared to the KLR 650, the Versus emits far less pollutants at the tailpipe, um, even though they both displace 650 cc's. Uh, and that is one of the most important things for any manufacturer to consider going forward. When you see uh, Euro 3, Euro 4, and so on, uh, these emissions restrictions in, in the Western markets, uh, everybody has to meet them, and they have to think about that when they design motorcycles down the, for years down the road, not just today. Is the Versus a carbureted um, engine? I believe the current model has EFI. But even the EFI versus carburation argument, I don't think is any, uh, I don't think it has as much bearing on it as people believe. Because there are EFI bikes, the thumpers that are being discontinued too. I'm pretty sure the XT660 had EFI, although it could be uh, incorrect. I never see them here in Canada. No, so. I think you're right. It did. And that was discontinued last year. So it wasn't just an EFI versus carburation issue. Um, there's other things afoot. When you get a large piston, uh, when it heats up, the rings and the cylinder walls deform more than they do in a small piston, which means more blow-by, which means more pollutants, which means it's a lot harder to uh, pass emissions testing. Some companies are willing to, to put the work in uh, to keep single-cylinder motors uh, in the lineup, KTM in particular. But I think going forward, you're going to see more and more of these bikes are going to kind of fall by the wayside, not be developed, and the parallel twins are going to be the way forward. As far as a rider goes, what's the difference really? You know, with the, like, I mean, other than the obvious, you know, the pop, pop, pop of the single and the smoother sound of the, the twin or, or more or three or four cylinders, what's the difference? You know, what would make someone lean to more towards one than the other? I think the smoothness of the parallel twin is going to win a lot of people over in the long term. Uh, a parallel twin can be tuned many different ways if you want to mess around with the cam and the crankshaft. You can get all sorts of different configurations. But uh, typically, modern parallel twins are far smoother to ride long distances than thumpers are, especially once you get into the 500, 650, 750 range. So why does anyone want a thumper at all then? Thumpers are typically lighter. A single-cylinder motor is typically lighter than a twin. And most single-cylinder motors can be tuned and are tuned to make quite a bit of bottom-end torque. That's not usually the case with parallel twins. They can make a lot of torque depending how you configure them, but they're not typically tuned that way. In the article that you wrote recently for Canada Moto Guide about parallel universes, surprising comeback of parallel twins, you said in there, thumpers won't die off completely. But I think last time we talked, that was sort of the premise, wasn't it? Was it was going to be sort of the death of thumpers? What's changed? I think that there's enough interest 
in single-cylinder bikes, particularly amongst uh, the more off-road oriented market, that there's going to always be somebody around building them as long as they can pass enough emissions testing or grandfather them in somehow. You can still buy a two-stroke motorcycle, even though two-strokes haven't really been on the streets in in decades. But you can still go buy a two-stroke from a company like Sherco or somebody like that. And I think single cylinders are going to be around, at least in the North American market, as long as they pass emissions testing. Um, I don't know how long the Japanese manufacturers will continue to sell the 650s, uh, but as long as they can make money off them with no development costs, they'll keep them in the lineup. After that, I think you're going to see more of the niche companies like uh, CCM, Sherco, uh, those outfits are going to be the people selling thumpers. I thought you were going to say that um, the the thumpers might be in the smaller displacement engines, but really we're seeing the newer small displacement bikes as twins now, aren't we? Yeah, so that's a very interesting point. If you look at Yamaha's WR250, that was probably the most advanced single-cylinder motor coming out of Japan at this point, at least the most advanced one that I know of. I think it had titanium valves and so on. It's quite quite advanced when you compare to something like a KLR650 or even my own uh, DR650. But even the WR250 is now supposedly on the chopping block, if we can believe uh, the rumors and the gossip. I don't know if it's true or not. It hasn't been confirmed to me, but that's what I've heard. And on the other hand, you see Suzuki coming out with their V-Strom 250 uh, built around a made-in-China parallel twin. So that seems to be the way forward, even in that displacement category, like you said. So what do you think this means to us as as adventure motorcyclists or even the average motorcyclist? Are we losing anything? I think for the rider who likes aggressive off-roading, if you want to ride a fast bike in the 650 or less segment that has a fairly lightweight, you're probably going to see your bike's going to be heavier 10 years from now than it is now, I would expect, because parallel twins weigh more. But over 650, I I think the 750, 800s, 900s, I think they're all going to be relatively close to what they are now. A lot of that class is already parallel twins, and I think you're going to see more options in the next few years, and maybe even a little bit of competition will uh, will make things a little more exciting. I think you're already seeing the beginnings of that. You've got BMW supposedly coming out with a F900 uh, this year. You've got the KTM scalpel platform that's supposedly going to be uh, around 790 cc's. Uh, I think a bit of competition in this will be good for riders who are interested in that sort of a uh, size range. But really, how long are we going to have gas engines for before everything's electric? That's a very good point. Uh, I think for adventure motorcyclists, the gas engines are going to be around for a while because you cannot ride an electric motorcycle through some parts of the world right now. At least not very efficiently. You might have to uh, get your motorcycle towed in the back of a, of a truck or something like that between generation points. I don't know. Um, the gas engine is here to stay for a lot longer, whether or not people think so, because a lot of these tech articles you see touting the electric motor and its benefits, they're true. The electric motor has a ton of benefits over the gasoline engine. However, if you don't live in a place that has the infrastructure for it, and that includes a lot of North America even, then it doesn't it doesn't matter how many benefits the electric motor has if you can't drive around from point a to point b because you don't have the range you're not going to switch and even charging i mean until they get to the point where you can pull in and charge 
you know, probably less than five minutes, I would think would be the, the, the longest you'd want to hang around charging. Unless you get to that point, it's probably not going to, and of course, the other thing is we've run out of oil. That's going to make the difference. But as far as the electric's taking over, until they fix those two things, the range and the, the charging speed, yeah, that that's so, sort of holds them at bay, doesn't it? I'm surprised that no one's making a lot of noise about the charging speed developments in the last year or so. Hollywood Electrics out in uh, in California has developed a supercharger that charges electric motorcycles much more quickly. Uh, and Honda and Yamaha are currently working on a swappable battery uh, program. Now, that only is aimed at commuter scooters. But once swappable batteries come in, then you're going to see electric motorcycles take a big step forward as long as everybody can agree on what size and shape the batteries take. Mm. Because then you could have installations of batteries that you could just switch as you go, just like you switch, uh, you know, just like you fill up on gas today. Uh, I think there are a few advantages to the parallel twin over some of the other sort of display, or sort of energy configurations. The, uh, the parallel twin has a, advantages over the V-twin, for instance, um, a lot of people will say, well, I like V-twin engines, KTM uses them, or even Harley-Davidson. A lot of Harley-Davidson fans out there will say, why doesn't the rest of the industry move to a V-twin? There are some advantages to the parallel twin, as particularly in the transmission department. You can run a much beefier transmission under a parallel twin than you can behind a V-twin because it makes an engine shorter. So that's quite an advantage. Um, and I think you're also going to see that a lot of the new parallel twins are going to be very fuel efficient. And that's definitely an advantage going forward as well, especially for someone riding around the world. When they're designing a motorcycle, do you have any sort of insight in how they choose an engine configuration, whether they're going to use a V or a parallel twin or, or an inline four? Do you, do you have any insight into how they come up with their answer for that? I would hardly say I have an inside line to the industry, but I will say from the people I've talked to that efficiency is what it's all about. If you can design a motor that can be used in a wide variety of bikes, and serve a wide variety of purposes, uh, then that's what they want to use going ahead. In parallel twins, you can use them in sport bikes, cruisers, adventure bikes, uh, standards. So they're adaptable to a wide range of platforms, so they make sense that way. And they keep a wide range of riders happy. Even if they aren't the most exciting motors in the world, they get the job done. And they're fairly uh, cost-efficient to produce when you compare them to even a V-twin or an inline four, inline, th uh, inline three, or triple. Uh, so that they're winning on a lot of on a lot of counts. And I think that's why we're going to see them come to the forefront here in the next twelve months or so. Well, Zach, great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thanks for the chance to be on here again, Jim. And that was Zach Kerlick, the Managing Editor at Canada Moto Guide. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W dot com. 
Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, if you like what you're hearing here and you want to hear more, drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. You can listen to all of our episodes for free. We also have another show that you have to subscribe separately to. It's our ARR Raw show with the roundtable discussions with travelers, and that's a monthly show. You have to subscribe separately, so drop by the website. Look at that as well. Click on the Raw button. If you'd like to help support the show, the show is built on a model of some advertising and listener support to make it work. We, I mean, we really appreciate the support that we've got so far from listeners. If you're one of those people, thank you very much. If you're interested in it, drop by the website and click on the support button. We have all kinds of incentives. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our Raw show, which is the other show that I just mentioned. Drop by the website, check it out. We also signed up for Patreon, which allows monthly donations. If you want to put a, a small amount in your credit card, it'll get charged each month. We would love it because that would make a huge difference to us. Now it's time, I guess, to get out there and ride your bike. My name's Jim Martin. See you next week. Hi, I'm Annette Bergman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 